0: Good morning, church. We are going to be in 2 Peter today, the first chapter of 2 Peter. So if you like, you can open up to there. Outline and Bible is coming around now for you. And one one other quick announcement as well. I wanted to point out to you all that Raquel, our our secretary, did a really good job with updating our bulletin. Um, If you notice on the first page now, It lists here on the left column the whole Lord's Day activities, rather than just the morning service and that, and that order of service and that liturgy. So now it lists the whole Lord's Day there for you so you can know what to expect and how to be involved. So I hope that you could hold on to that. And also, she put the catechism question for the week on the other side, so that way you could take that home and have it printed out and think about it and meditate on it and, and uh, see as to how it applies unto uh, your life and the truthfulness of it as it's contained in the Word. So as I said, 2 Peter chapter 1, that's where we will be this morning. You know, one of the things that becomes clear the longer that one has been a Christian is that Christianity is steadily met with opposition in this age that we live in, in between Christ's first and second coming. The opposition to the faith Once and for all, passed down to the saints comes in many forms. There's many ways in which we face this opposition. I, for one, wouldn't have expected that many American pastors would have canceled uh, their church service on the Lord's Day over the circumstance of Christmas Day. But that's what happened. We would expect opposition... Enmity and strife from outside the church, perhaps. But the more familiar that you become with the Scriptures, you see that what the prophets and the apostles are most concerned with are the attacks and are the opposition that comes from actually within the church, from within the people of God. And that's not to minimize, minimize that we always will contend against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 2.2-3. 2, 2 but of course, you know, we bring our flesh with us wherever we go. And the world and the devil, unfortunately, have a way of getting into the church. But in some ways... This opposition feels like going up against that mythical Hydra monster. Uh, you, you know, you cut off one of its head, and then two more appear to take its place. Strike another blow, and then another display shows itself, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so it is with dealing with this beast of opposition that comes against the church. And we can hack away at those different heads of this monster, and sometimes you need to do that. But what is its source? You hack off ahead and it still lives, right? So that tells us that there's something behind this opposition. And a lot of the inertia that the church spends in contending with opposition is often against the fruit and not the root of the problem. And sometimes, again, you need to deal with those fruits because those, those are damaging and harmful as well too. But what could be the root of the opposition? What has been the issue at the center of every battle that the church as a whole, or even really as in, we as individuals, face and struggle against? It has always come down to the authority and the truthfulness of God's Word. The authority of Scripture has been for the past two centuries under almost constant attack. And so it's no surprise that that should be the very battle that we face at this hour as well. And what we are beginning to see is that more Christians, even those who consider themselves evangelicals, they are questioning the full and complete inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And this problem, I mean, it's it's, it's not new, right? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden before the fall. It's always been the issue in every age. You know, did God really say is that infamous line from the serpent there in the garden. And so it's no surprise that we face this issue in our day as well. Inspiration, meaning that the scriptures are in fact God's word. And inerrant, meaning that they are without error and therefore trustworthy. And and this means that it it is even more crucial that we understand, and that we defend, and that we celebrate, that we celebrate the authority of the Bible in our homes, in our churches, in all places. And this morning's text will help us to do that. Because Peter is dealing with opposition in his day, which has the same root problem. And this, there's a matter that Peter is going to bring back to the Word of God here in our text. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord briefly to bless our time through prayer after we read it. So the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 19 in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp Shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for giving us time to open up your word together. We know that you have the words of life, and that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray that you would exalt yourself among us this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears that hear like we just prayed in that song together just a moment ago, knowing that any understanding we have ultimately comes from you, Lord. So open up our eyes to the truthfulness and the wonderfulness of your word this morning, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you remember, um, this is actually the second half of the case that Peter has been making to his audience. We dealt with that few uh, many weeks ago. But he's dealing with a specific matter before the church in his day, but that's not to say that it's unique to his day. Uh, We need to be ready and be ready to contend, that is, with the same matters in our day, now roughly 2,000 years later than when Peter went under inspiration when he wrote this. And so we'll get to what that means and why it matters. But first, let me remind you of the context of this so that we can know about the specific points that he makes and how they fit into the larger argument of the letter. So, if we were to limit our understanding of Second Peter just to the first chapter, we can say that he's, he's writing to instill in his readers a concern for godliness, uh, for, for holiness... Verses 3 through 11, we saw the power, the purpose, and the plan for godliness. And then in verses 12 through 15, Peter reminds them that he is soon to give up this tent, his body. That is, that he's soon to die. But these qualities that he mentioned in the previous verses, he was teaching them that they need to be remembered and valued even after he departs. And he begins this way, with a narrowing in on godliness how the christian life should be marked by godliness because of opposition in the church uh, opposition opposition that is already there and opposition that he foresees coming in stronger and we'll see that in chapter 2 and 3 that there are these false teachers among them arguing that a promiscuously a promiscuous sensual lifestyle is acceptable for christians and then In order to appease the consciences of those who listen to them, these false teachers, look at what they say in chapter 3, verse 4. Verse 4, this is what Peter says the false teachers will say. He says, They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter exhorts the church, telling them, eventually he'll go on to be be saying, pay no attention to these false teachers. Don't get entangled in their lies. Instead, think of the plain teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and pursue holiness. And as a matter of fact, the reality is that Jesus is coming again. And there will be a parousia, that's his second coming. And when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. Salvation for his people... And judgment for the wicked. And so the very thing that the false teachers are saying, you know, go ahead, live a promiscuous, live a sensual lifestyle. It doesn't matter. Jesus isn't coming back anyway. Everything's gonna, everything is continuing on as it has been forever. Peter turns that on his head here. And he's, he's saying, no, 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 that, that's not the truth. The Lord Jesus is coming again. And that means we actually can't be given over to sensuality. Look at chapter 3 again, verse 11 through 12. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? The false teachers... They rejected that the Lord was actually going to return in this manner with earth-renewing judgments. And so Peter is reminding them that indeed Jesus will return. And he gives them two pieces of evidence. We saw the first one in verses 16 and 18. That was his first argument. And there he appeals to eyewitness testimony. He says... We were eyewitnesses, not just he himself, but we. It was also James and John that he was thinking of. And they were speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration. They were witnesses to that. They saw the glorious, exalted Christ, a glimpse of him there in that moment. They heard the voice of the Father who said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And at that event, there where Jesus was glorified, it was to emphasize that he would be coming again after he did what he did to come and redeem his people in his first coming. The future return of Christ is simply the second installment of Christ's transfiguration, which prefigures or proleptically anticipates the parousia. So Peter was an eyewitness to this transfiguration and he's saying in that, that you can trust us. You can believe us. They've shown themselves, Peter and the other apostles, have shown themselves to be trustworthy. They've heralded the true gospel. And they saw this event with their own eyes. That's his first argument. And then he gives the second piece of evidence, which is the authority of Scripture. So two arguments, two evidences. And even today, in a courtroom today, these are the basic kinds of evidences that we would see. A lawyer will submit documents, or the lawyer will call witnesses. And so we've seen the witnesses, and now his second argument, we're seeing the documents. He's making an airtight argument against these false teachers. So let's consider this second argument this morning. Notice verse 19. He says that we have the prophetic word. What does Peter mean when he speaks of the prophetic word? Is he thinking of just those prophetic books? You know, I don't really like the distinction of major and minor prophets. I hate saying that because they all proclaim the same equal, important, and authoritative word of God. Some are just longer than others. But is he thinking of just those when he says the prophetic word? Or does Peter have in mind just spoken prophecy, um, oration, the oral giving of God's Word? Is that what he's thinking of when he says the prophetic word? And if that's the case, perhaps not even Scripture at all. Or is it perhaps the Old Testament that he's thinking of, all of the Old Testament? Well, I would argue that Peter is in fact thinking of all of Scripture, That's what he says, that's what he means when he says the prophetic word. He's referring to all of Scripture. He's certainly thinking of what has been written down as well, which is we see that in verse 20. So verse 19, he mentions the prophetic words. And then in verse 20, speaking of the same topic, he calls it the prophecy of Scripture. So we have the prophetic word and the prophecy of Scripture. Scripture is the Greek word graphe, and it literally means writings. So we're thinking not just of oral traditions, not just of some spoken events, but truth that has been written down and preserved in the Holy Scriptures. This prophetic word, and not just the prophetic parts. Scholar Richard Bachman affirms that prophecy is synonymous for, with scripture because in the current Jewish understanding, all inspired scripture was prophecy. So you know, for example, we think of the genres of books. We think you know, there's wisdom literature, and that's true, and there's historical narrative, and there is you know, apocalyptic literature, and there is um, poetic literature like the Proverbs as well, all for the As a Jew would understand this word prophecy, especially at the time of Peter's writing, he would think, and he, she would think, that all of it is prophetic. All of it comes from God. All of it has a divine origin. So it's not just those books at the end of the Old Testament. It's not just oral tradition. Um, You may have heard of this before, uh, the term the Law and the Prophets as a general designation for the Old Testament. You may have come across that before. Um, Sometimes it's just even called the Law even. Well, here I think it's referred to simply as the Prophetic Word. All of the Old Testament, and even actually more, is simply referred to as the prophetic word. John Calvin says, I understand by prophecy of Scripture to be that which is contained in the Holy Scriptures. So this is a broader term, and it's simply referring to everything that God has given in the way of Scripture. Peter, he has described the word as carrying a prophetic tone, or a prophetic element that characterizes it generally. And the whole Old Testament is a prophetic word spoken about the Messiah. It all points to Jesus. When we read our Old Testaments today, church, and this has been true ever since the Old Testament canon was completed, we should be reading it with an eye toward Jesus, towards God's plan of redemption and reconciliation in Christ Jesus. Everything is either pointing either explicitly or implicitly to the gospel. The, everything that happened in the Old Testament is true. It truly happened, and it happened according to God's sovereign plan in such a way that it also foretold what Christ would do—that He would be our substitute there upon the cross, that we would have our our sins forgiven, so that we can have salvation and rest in Christ, that God would be our redeemer. That's all there in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, which we commonly you know, assume and expect it to be in, but it's there in the Old Testament as well. We see this fairly plainly at a few points in the New Testament. Uh, remember when John records a discussion with the Pharisees who were rejecting Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Uh, they were rejecting his claim to be the prophet, priest, and king. And so Jesus tells them, This is John's gospel, John 5, 39. Jesus tells them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But they are that which speak of me. Jesus says, go through the scriptures. You're searching them for eternal life, but actually they're all about me. And and at that point in history, when Jesus is saying that, what could he be talking about? He's referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been compiled and written down and set forth at the time of Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees. You've, in Luke, you remember chapter 24, I'm, I'm sure, the road to Emmaus. Uh, verse 27 there, Jesus, where we read um, that Luke records, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then in just a few verses later Jesus is with his disciples and this is Luke 24:44 he says to the disciples at that point these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled and then in verse 25 or 45 excuse me 45 he says Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Certainly, the disciples were able to understand the Scriptures rationally, logically, in their common tongue. But don't miss this. The sovereign Son of God must also open their minds to understand the Scriptures. We have no room to boast before God. That which we believe which we truly believe and hold convictionally, we confess that God has shown it to us. And praise God for that. Uh, he has given that to you. It's all because of the work of mediation uh, by Christ on your behalf. So how do, we, how do we know, perhaps, then that we believe and that our minds have been opened up? Uh, Jesus says elsewhere, you know, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. He says that because he, not us, but he has opened up our minds so that we believe his word, so that we hear his voice. If you're believing, if you hear his voice, praise God, it is what he's done. He has opened up your mind so that you don't simply understand the scriptures rationally and logically, just as words upon a page, as if you would read any other book, but you do it with a living faith. That's what he did for those men on the, the road to Emmaus. He took what they believed already and he increased it even. But they may see the, the shadows and the types and illusions that were always there in the Old Testament. Genesis all the way to Malachi. The whole Old Testament speaks of Christ one way or another. He is the point. He is the subject of the Old Testament. The prophetic word. That's what we read here in Second Peter, the prophetic word. The use of the definite article makes us confident that he marks out the Old Testament as a group of books of revelation pointing to the coming Messiah, what he would do and accomplish. And by the way, What Peter says is not just limited to the Old Testament because the New Testament is also an inspired record of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ in His first coming. And then he gives it more truth related to the Christian life in anticipation of that second coming. So whether it's the word of the Old Testament prophets or the word of the New Testament apostles and the other biblical authors, it is all the prophetic word. Peter is referring to all-inspired revelation, just like Paul, the apostle, is referring to all-inspired revelation when he says, all Scripture is inspired by God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, right? It's all Scripture is God-breathed. It is theopneustos, All of it. And later, if you look at chapter 3, verse 16, in 2 Peter now, it's a different 3.16. Peter is talking about the Apostle Paul there in in verse 16, and he says about him, As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. Paul, or Peter, already at this early date is putting Paul's writings in the category of other scriptures. So yes, he's thinking of the Old Testament right now, but at the time of writing this, it's an expanding category in the first century to include these other apostolic writings. The Second London Baptist Confession, the first chapter of it is on the Holy Scriptures. It's ten articles or ten paragraphs long. The first chapter, or the first article of it, Says this. This is a little more lengthy, but this is what it says about the, the holy scriptures, Old and New Testaments. It says the holy scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcus- inexcusable. So, thinking of Romans one. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and of the world... "...to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being completed." So they're wanting to capture the truthfulness of God's Word, which spans from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And actually, the second article of the Second London Baptist Confession in chapter 1 goes ahead to list those 66 books. Uh, of the Bible, all of it is the Word of God. All of it is Holy Scripture. And so, think of what the Apostle Paul says as well to the Church in Ephesus about its growth and its inclusion into the nation, uh, of its inclusion with outside nations into the covenants of promise. This is Ephesians two twenty. He says that it is the Church is is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. You see, if the foundation of the church, of which Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, if it contains the words of God in the teaching of the prophets, then what also must the teaching of the apostles be but the word of God as well? And though we don't know the point in time in which the authors of the New Testament epistles realized that they were writing authoritative letters on the same level with the Old Testament, but there's enough evidence in their letters to indicate that they did realize it at some point. Meaning that what Peter was, not, was saying here in his second letter is not just some suggestion based off of wisdom, He's not just giving an idea to the church, but he's speaking authoritatively. The epistles at various places indicate to us that what the apostles wrote and what was approved by an apostle carried with it the status of being from the Lord. Their writings, again, this is from 2 Peter, their writings are the commandments of the Lord and Savior. And we see that in 2 Peter 3.2. When the apostles wrote as apostles, their words were considered the word of the Lord. But the basis for the New Testament epistles being on the same level of authority of the Old Testament scriptures is not to be found on the apostles themselves. In other words, the the apostles did not appoint themselves to this task. The apostles did not assume something about themselves that was not true of themselves. Their authority For writing the Holy Scripture did not come from themselves, and nor did it even come from the church. The church does not have the authority to determine what is and what is not authoritative. What is not authoritative Holy Scripture. In fact, the apostles do not have authority in and by themselves to determine what's authoritative Scripture for the church. This prerogative, this right, this power, this sovereignty is found only in our Lord, the cornerstone and builder of the church. I recall the words of the Lord to His apostles. He says to them that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said, John fourteen twenty six. He will... Again, he says, He will testify about me and you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. John 15, 26 to 27. And then He will guide you into all truth. He will disclose to you what is to come. John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit's work was to authorize the apostles for them to set forth Holy Scripture. Our Lord Himself is the basis for the epistles being added to the Old Testament Scriptures as the written Word of God. Brothers and sisters, we can have confidence that what our Lord promised to the apostles, He has fulfilled in, their, in the written documents contained in the New Testament. And that means that the New Testament is authoritative just like the Old Testament is. And this is important because of Peter's next statement. Because of what he's about to say next in verse 19. So he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, that the word is more sure. Now, a lot of the commentators think that Peter is saying that the eyewitness testimony to the transfiguration is made more sure when it's confirmed by the prophetic word. So, in other words... They're thinking that he's saying something like, we saw the transfiguration, and then, you know, we also read about the coming of God and the end of the world. and So that makes what we saw even more sure. And what that does then is it elevates experience over Scripture. But that's not Peter's intent here. The ESV is a good translation of the original Greek, and Peter is doing something that is surprising, something that we probably wouldn't expect um, to happen, especially the way we understand things today. What he's saying is this. He's saying, as good and as trustworthy is the experience that we had, this prophetic word is more sure. As good as the experience was that we saw, the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. And while it is true that they saw Christ's majesty, and that in seeing His majesty, they may have had their own mind, they may have had some confirmation then of the Old Testament prophecy, it would be a very strange statement if it meant that their experience validated Old Testament prophecy. It would seem strange to me to say that, because it would be saying, as strong as the Word is, there is something even stronger, and that's our experience. And, and now, when that happens, you flipped things, and you have experience verifying Scripture. But on the contrary, God Himself has repeatedly emphasized that the Word is a sufficient source of truth, and that the Word is inerrant, and that the Word is infallible, and is never to be questioned, and never to be helped along or validated, as it were, by experience. You know what's not infallible? What's not inerrant? Experience. Those change. But the Word of God stands over us, judging us, not the other way around. Uh, The prophetic Word is more fully confirmed than what he saw with his own eyes on the mountain. That is contrary to how we normally think of things in our own lives, isn't it? And yet that, I think, is precisely what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, look, You may question what we saw on the mountain, if we really understood it, if we saw it at all, if it's accurate, if it really happened the way that we said it did. Well, let me give you an even more convincing proof that there is a coming day of the Lord. The Scripture says so. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe Peter, you can believe the Word of God. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And so don't miss the implication. When it says in... Verse 19, that we have something more fully confirmed. The implication is that this Bible that we have, that we all, by the grace of God in this modern age, are able to have with us many of many different um, translations and copies of it, either digital or physical, that God's Word is more reliable than our senses. It's more reliable than our experience. Say you saw something you felt something, you experienced something, okay, but I'll give you something more sure, the Word of God. That is authoritative. The Scriptures say so. So we do not need to get a special word of knowledge from the Lord to really hear from Him. There's no need for a fresh word from the Lord. It says so in Scripture. Scripture is greater than experience. And we don't have to wonder, can we really understand and know what the Scripture says? Because Peter is working under the assumption that they understand what the Word is saying. Because he's writing to believers, to people who have had their minds opened up by the Lord. So verse 19 continues. Pay attention. That's that's what the Word says. I'm not saying that you're not. It says, You would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's good instruction, isn't it? That we would do well to pay attention to the Word. So many things in this world vie for our attention. But the Word, it is the Word that should take preeminence. God knows we need this even. We are bombarded with false teaching all the time. And sometimes, again, it comes subtly from within the church. And so pay attention. Be alert, right? You have to know that you're in Christ and know where you stand. And now he says, then you've also got to know Scripture, and he's given to us the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, so that we might gather and be strengthened. Take advantage of that. Pay attention is Peter's admonishment. And to make this point even more direct, he offers a metaphor in verse 19. It's a very simple one. He says, As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Simply this, if you're wandering about in a dark place, you would desire a lamp to light your path, right? Uh, New Year's Eve, for those of us in, who live in Oakley, right? Power goes out, and immediately we're lighting candles and searching for flashlights and battery-powered lanterns. So it is with the Word. And you would do well to heed the Word like a man wand, who is wandering in the dark would take heed to a lamp. It's simple. And this world, spiritually speaking, is covered in darkness, isn't it? And the church with the word of God is like a light on a hill in this world. And it's the word of God that makes the church that light. Our good works would be nothing without the word, they would be baseless. The word, says the psalmist, is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, Psalm 119, 105. The word is like a lamp to give light when our way is uncertain. And it's not just a suggestion, again, God's word is authoritative. You need His Word. I need His Word. We all need His Word. And we go about the path of life to our own peril when the Word of God is not a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We should be in the Word, reading it daily, setting aside time for that and meditating upon it. We have that blessing available to us at this time. The church in years past didn't always have that. And we'd be foolish to not take advantage of it. It's a healthy supplement to the means of grace that you receive on the Lord's day. The the Scripture is a light in the darkness, and it shines, but only temporarily, Peter says. It's going to endure forever, but it shines as a light in the dark place temporarily, because it is only as long as that we are in this world, this age, that there is this darkness and that's what he says. Follow his thought in verse 19. He says we should pay attention to it as a light, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until. Until. What that means is it's only for a while. It's not permanent until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What is this referring to? In the Greco-Roman world, the morning star was the planet Venus. And now Peter sort of co-ops this image and then put it into an Old Testament framework. And he's using it to now refer to Christ. Which again, remember, Jesus opens up our minds so that we can see how the Old Testament is pointing to Him, that He's the point and subject of it. And This is referring to Christ here in Numbers 24, where Balaam prophesied. It's verse 17 and 19 in Numbers 24. It says... Balaam's prophecy says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be disposed. Edom shall be disposed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. That's talking about Christ. There's a messianic prophecy that a star from Jacob, from Israel's lineage, would come and it would be a destroyer of the wicked, a judge of the nations. This is Not simply a prophecy about Christ's first coming, friends. We could say that it's about His coming in general. But it certainly includes His second coming and the judgment of the wicked. So, it makes sense that Peter would use this imagery when the morning star rises in your hearts. When this star of Jacob comes to judge the nations. And when he says... It's rising in your hearts. He's speaking of our hearts, the church's hearts. It's, it's our experience of Christ coming as it will be a swelling up and a filling up of joy in our hearts to see Christ return. It's a joyous event which will be such wonderful good news to us but also at the same time such grave news for those who are the enemies of Christ to all who have opposed Him. When Jesus comes... We'll not need the prophetic word to shine in a dark place because this place will no longer be dark for us. Sin will finally be put to an end and then our hearts will be enlightened by the morning star himself and that to which prophecy points will have arrived. Not to say that we won't have the word. I think that we will. Why would you know, this testimony be totally done away with? But the darkness will be gone. And and Jesus, the morning star himself, will be our light. Uh, Peter's opponents, these false teachers, they reject that. And we should know that it's not incompatible to speak of an eschatological event and then its interior impact on us as well. The knowledge of God that shines upon us in conversion, 2 Corinthians 4.6, will reach its consummation at the second coming, the parousia. Then... Verse 20 and 21, we consider the interpretation of Scripture. It reads, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. First of all, this is how Peter begins. You can tell that this is important to Peter. He's getting now to the source of Scripture and the reasoning that we are to have an interpretation of it in light of the importance of it. It's a word of caution, really, for this light that is in the darkness. We aren't to think of it as simply man's wisdom, but that this wisdom, this light, is from God. It has divine origin. And we must remember that in light of what the false teachers say about it, because they're, they're challenging that. They're questioning it. David Helm notes, in essence, he is arguing that the Bible in particular, the fullness of its message from first to last, is not myth. It isn't the stuff of fables and fairy tales. Nothing written down here came forth from the mind or will of man. As such, the Scriptures are not a human record of history of God. Rather, they contain the true and authoritative story of God as He enters into human history. Close quote. There are human authors that God superintends in the writing of Scripture, but Scripture has a divine author that we must acknowledge. That's why it is authoritative, that God carries them along. He superintends them, but there is a divine author who is doing that, and that's why it's authoritative. Because remember, it is theopnusos, it is God breathed the end of verse 20, it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation we read. That is to say that when the biblical authors received revelation from God, they did not just like receive it and then sort of struggle and wrestle with what it was that they received. And they didn't have to dwell upon it. And then maybe, maybe the message from God got confused or lost before it was written down. This isn't the same sort of thing that we see elsewhere. It's not like God giving a dream to Pharaoh or to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Pharaoh got the dream and Nebuchadnezzar got the dream, but they didn't quite know what to do with it. They had to go search someone else who knew Yahweh, who was known of Yahweh in the sense of salvation, so they could have understanding. They needed someone else to give the interpretation. But that's not what we have here. That's not what Peter is saying about how they got the prophecy of Scripture. No, it says the prophets, the men who spoke by God, they got the word, they got the revelation, and their understanding of it did not come from their own interpretation. It's not their own idea. And it goes even further. And he says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, this word of revelation isn't determined by the one who has initially received it. We might think of it like this. Even it's been popular in small group studies across evangelicalism for this um, small of, over the last decade, two decades perhaps even for the small group leader to ask the um, the group after reading a text, "What does this verse mean to you?" And, and that would be a very bad way of studying the scriptures. Not only does a text of scripture not have a unique meaning for individuals who are reading it. But it also doesn't have an individually determined meaning for the biblical authors who communicated God's inspired Word to us originally. Its source of meaning, every biblical text, its source of meaning, comes from God and it needs to be understood in light of the corpus of Scripture itself. The right question to ask when it comes to the interpretation of God's Word is not what does this text mean to me, but what does this text mean? What does it mean as it came from God? Chapter one, article again, article uh, chapter one. This time, article nine in the Second London Baptist Confession says this. and This is on your outline as well. Uh, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. That's also known as the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is a reformed hermeneutical principle which states that since all scripture is harmoniously united with no essential contradictions, therefore every Proposed interpretation of any passage must be compared with what the other parts of the Bible teach. In other words, there is one unified message of Scripture that doesn't contradict itself. And we look at Scripture to help us interpret other Scripture. We don't think, what does this mean to me? We look at the Bible and say, what is God communicating? And in other words, the faith of the body of doctrine, which the Scriptures as a whole proclaim, will not be... contradicted in any way by any other passage. Therefore, you know, if, if two or three different interpretations of a verse seem equally possible, not saying that there are, but saying if that happens, any interpretation that contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture in other places must be ruled out from the very beginning. And so, just think of the doctrines that the false teachers that in Peter's day are wanting to um, impose upon the church, that Peter's wanting to protect the church from. They're promoting a sexually promiscuous lifestyle. They're saying that Jesus isn't going to come back with judgment. So it doesn't matter how you live, it's all grace. Well, that interpretation of Scripture is certainly then of private use. It contradicts what Scripture says, quite plainly even. And so therefore, these false teachers must be rejected. That's Peter's case, building up to his closing answer. Scripture doesn't come from one's own interpretation. And it certainly does not come from the will of man. But notice what verse 21 does say. Notice how it ends. It says that men spoke from God. So, and then they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. So there are two parts that we need to think of here. We need to deal with both of them. And from this, we have strong biblical support for what B.B. Warfield called concursus, In other words, that both human beings and God were fully involved in the process of inspiration. Their personality and the gifts of the human authors were not squelched or suppressed. We can detect their literary styles even today. And yet the words that they spoke do not cancel out the truth that they spoke the very word of God. Concursus means that both God and human beings contributed to the prophetic word. Ultimately, however, and most significantly, these human words are God's words. The prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible portrays itself as God's word so that the scripture is stamped with divine authority. It speaks without error and it presents an organic unity. And at the same time, the Bible was produced through human instruments, giving, it, giving in it a great variety in terms of the types and styles of writing, fully connecting Scripture to the human experience. And despite the fallibility, the, the, the ability for the human authors to err, and the varied perspective of human authors, the Bible was produced under God's full control so that what Scripture achieves is God's purpose in revealing Himself to men and women. Uh, the, and especially the knowledge of salvation. The human authors were able to convey God's Word because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who superintended the process by which the Bible was written, just as God sovereignly created and shaped the human instruments for this very purpose. Right? I mean, it's no accident that certain people wrote what they did. It's all the sovereign will of God. While we acknowledge and profit from the human character of Scripture, the controlling idea remains that Scripture is the word of God. And so that it must be then approached reverently and received in obedience. So Peter, he's concerned with the source of Scripture. Prophets didn't invent it. They didn't invent the word, no, not at all. The same God who spoke at the transfiguration about the deity and the humanity of Christ, the same God who spoke of the perfection of His Son, is the same God who authored Scripture. You do well, He says, to give heed to this Holy Scripture like a light in the midst of a worldly darkness, because what is in it is not the result of human inventions like the myths of these false teachers. The words of the prophets, the words of the apostles and the biblical authors who were used by God in this unique and rare rare way did not give us their own ideas. Quite contrary to Scripture being of human origin, Peter is setting forth the divine origin of Scripture here in these verses. For no prophecy, for no word of Scripture, no word of God, not any, was ever... Absolutely ever. Notice the emphasis. Ever. No prophecy was ever at any time made by an act of the human will. The Bible is not the product of men. God used human authors to accomplish the telling, writing, and preserving of His revelation to us. And when it came to the original receiving and recording of that revelation, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And all those men, that means they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's a present passive participle. It means that they were continually carried along, continually brought along as they wrote. It's used, the same verb is used in Acts 27, verses 15 and 17, of a ship that's being blown along the sea by the wind, just brought along. The unique shape of the ship and the material it's made from determine the way it moves, but the wind is ultimately carrying along. And that's the way we should look at it. The prophets had their sails raised, as it were, John MacArthur says. The spiritual sails were raised, and the Holy Spirit filled them with His breath and blew them along in the direction He chose them to go. As they wrote, they moved along by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because God god's action and giving us scripture we can say with peter that god's word is more fully confirmed than any experience someone has and tells us about and it's even greater than any experience we may have ourselves church we must never give up ground when it comes to the authority of scripture that is where the opposition against the church is always aiming did god really say does it matter? if we do this or live like this. You know, the times have changed. The church needs to catch up with the times. If God inspired it, which He did, then can it be with error? Can you have inspiration and lack inerrancy? You can't, because if you have that, then you're saying that God gave error, or that He wasn't mighty enough to prevent the human authors from error. Both of those options should make our skin crawl over what it says about our triune God. No, instead, what we confirm is what the Scriptures say, that God has inspired His inerrant and authoritative word, and so we should celebrate that, and we should confess that. That's where the attacks are coming against God and His church. Did God really say... All of these attacks are ultimately aiming at the authority of God's Word. Who is going to have authority, church? Man or God? Who is going to have authority in our homes, in our churches, in our lives? Scripture or the ideas of mere men? That's Peter's argument. This is God's Word and whose will they believe? The false teachers or God's Word? Seems obvious to us, doesn't it, by grace? But this battle, being honest, is not an easy battle. We see the church, again, in many ways, compromising on the authority of Scripture. But you've got to look to the word, church. The word more fully confirmed. That's our hope. That's where our foundation is. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Knowing that from your plan of creation, we can look at the world and nature and understand that there is a God. But we would not know the truth about our sin and the glorious plan of redemption if it wasn't for your giving of the word and the events that you caused to bring about throughout the course of history, which led up to it and promised again the second coming of Christ, the consummation of his kingdom, which we look forward to, Lord God. We look forward to it knowing that the morning star at that day will fill our hearts with joy. And we pray, Lord, for boldness that we might tell others of this great day which is coming and that you would cause us to be protected and to be discerning so that false teaching may not lead us astray. We need you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue to illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would be exalted among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.